Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 23. It's on page 535 of your Book of Praise. There we find God's Word summarized as follows. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. After the sermon, we will sing together from hymn 28 to stanzas 1, 6, and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, with Lord's Day 23, we come to the heart of the gospel. For question 59 asks one of the most important questions that can ever be asked. It asked, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? That is to say, why actually do you believe? Why do you go to church every Sunday? What do you get out of it? What do you get out of being a believer? Have you ever wondered those things yourself? What really is the sense of it all? What's the benefit? Time and again, the catechism comes with questions such as this, penetrating questions. It asks us to examine every aspect of our faith. It makes us question the purpose of our faith. For example, question 28 asks, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? And question 36 asks, what benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? And 43, what benefit, what further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? And 45, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And 51, how does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? And now here, what does it help you 
to believe all this. You see, the catechism does not want your faith to be a dead faith. It asks you and me important questions about our personal faith lives. The catechism isn't interested in some dead orthodoxy. It is not interested in abstract thinking or theological nitpicking. No, the, con the catechism deals with the content of our faith and what it all means. And the question that the catechism asks here is a very important one. For here we come actually to the heart of the matter. It refers to all this. All this refers to what preceded. And you know what came before this Lord's Day, for we have just finished dealing with the Apostles' Creed. Every statement of the Apostles' Creed was carefully examined and dealt with. The Apostles' Creed as we also confess in question and answer 22, is a summary of God's word. And so essentially, all this refers to the content of the Bible, to the gospel. However, this question also has in mind what comes after it. For after this and the following Lord's Day, we will deal with the sacraments, with baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the early church, you would confess your faith with the statements of the Apostles' Creed prior to being baptized, if you were an adult, and prior to partaking of the Lord's Supper. And the Catechism is now in reality saying, now then, before you are baptized or before you have your children baptized, and before you partake of the Lord's Supper, do you realize what it is all about? Do you have a good understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, the Heidelberg Catechism is a beautiful book. It's also very well arranged. It's a good summary of God's word. And it is evident not only from the pivotal place in which this question is asked, it's especially evident from the answer that it gives us. What benefit do you receive from your faith? Well, let us hear that wonderful answer that is given in Lord's Day 23. I will preach to you about the benefit of our justifying faith. And then we will see three things. First, why the question is asked. Two, what the only answer is. And then three, how we must respond. Answer 59 gives us the answer that the benefit of our faith is that in Christ I am righteous before God and an heir to life everlasting. Now I know this is theological language. It speaks here about the righteousness before God. Now those who are not familiar with the Bible and its language likely do not know exactly what that means. Let me tell you for we all need a refresher. Righteousness means being in a right relationship with the Lord God and with his law. Someone who is righteous before God is declared to be no longer guilty of transgressing his law. He or she is considered to be innocent. So what, says the atheist? I don't believe in God anyway. So... What does it matter what he thinks of me? 
What is God going to do to me? He's only a figment of people's imagination. There are also others who are not so impressed, for there are a lot of people who do believe in God. Very few people are atheists by conviction. Many believe that there must be some kind of intelligent designer or some God who created it all. However, even though they may know that he exists, they do not really care to get to know him. They are indifferent toward God. And that is because they make God to be someone he is not. They make him out to be someone who is not really interested in his creation, or they see him as a benevolent grandfather who is never angry and who is very generous, who is always full of love, and that means that he doesn't make any choices. He only does those things that he wants to do, and they're all good things. And that's true, of course, to a certain extent. But God is a God of justice. And we have to confess the God of the Bible. We live in a consumer-oriented society. If there is one thing that has meaning for the people, it is when you receive something. We all like to receive something, don't we? You too, little children, you like to receive things. When you have a birthday, you want to receive presents. That's what we're all like. Also, as adults, we're like that. People are interested in acquiring material things. On a radio comedy show, some time ago, I heard a comparison made between the shopping channels and the religion channels on TV. They said that essentially there is no difference between the two. A lot of people make shopping to be a religion and a religion to be like shopping. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? For what do the modern TV evangelists do in order to sell the gospel? Well, they make the gospel attractive by emphasizing the benefits of the Christian religion. When you become a Christian, they say you will have numerous benefits. You will have peace. You will have feelings of self-worth. You will receive all kinds of blessings. And if you pray and give alms, you will also receive other benefits. By ardent prayer, you will win that football game or that hockey game or that golf tournament. It's no wonder that many sports teams turn to Christ. Look at all the benefits. It's also a danger for us to look at it that way. Some people go to church faithfully, they make their various contributions, and they do their best to keep God's laws. But then when adversity strikes, and they are about to lose some of their earthly possessions, then they wonder what the benefit of their faith really is. Or they were abused as children and wonder about God's love and truth. How could this happen? I'm a child of God, aren't I? Why did he allow these things to happen to me? Or when there are a few things they don't like in their own church, they go shopping for another church. They try to find that church that best serves them. A church that makes them feel good. After all, that's what Christianity is all about, isn't it? It must serve me first. Serving God and being obedient to him, well, that's only secondary. But what is our faith all about? 
Are you out for your own happiness? Are you looking for earthly blessings? Is that the kind of benefit Joseph looked for, for example? He believed, yet he was sold into slavery and thrown into prison. Did he give up on God? And what about Jeremiah? Look at the things he had to suffer because of his faith. He was thrown into a dung hole and he was left to die there. And think about the apostle Paul and the other apostles. What earthly benefit did they look for? They didn't. If they had, they would have soon thrown their religion away when they had to endure all that adversity. According to the wisdom of the world, you get what you pay for. You receive benefit in accordance with the effort you put into it yourself. And that principle is also applied to religion. The more you pray, and the more you give to the church, and the better the moral life you live, the more you will receive from God. If you are a good person and live a fairly moral life, then on that basis, God will reward you. For he is the God of love, and he rewards those who are good. That's also the tenet of Arminianism. And that's also what the Pharisees thought. Righteousness is something you earn. Now note what the Catechism says. It speaks there about our righteousness before God. And such righteousness is obtained in a much different way than modern man thinks. For the world justifies itself in numerous ways. The world thinks that God can be bought or that God can be appeased with good works or they think that God can be ignored. Lord Jesus, however, said to the Pharisees in Luke 16, verse 15, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. It's a good thing that the Catechism speaks about our righteousness before God. We all tend to be self-righteous. Someone who is self-righteous thinks that he is good because of the works that he does. He thinks that he is better than others because of the way he conducts himself. The self-righteous person has no idea of his own sinful state. The Pharisees were very self-righteous creatures. But don't think that the Pharisees have a corner on self-righteousness. Self, such self-righteousness is found also amongst us. For a self-righteous person is someone who lacks humility. He is a person who looks down on others. He is a person who points fingers and says, well, I'm glad I'm not like him or I'm like her. He is a person who finds fault with others and not himself. He points fingers at others but not himself. As we all saw this morning, he highly values what other people think of him. And he does everything to show himself in a good light. His motivation is to impress others, to bring glory to his own name. 
And that's what you do when you're self-righteous. Then you're not out to bring glory to God's name. And such self-righteousness, therefore, is strongly condemned in the Bible. Congregation, it's not so hard to impress yourself with what a good person you are. And it's not so hard either to impress other people. But do you know what's hard? It is hard to impress God. Actually, it's impossible to impress him. You cannot impress him with anything you say or with anything you do. When we speak about our righteousness before God, we speak about a righteousness which is acceptable to a perfect and almighty God. We speak about a righteousness before a God who made the heavens and the earth and who established the covenant with his own people. We speak about a God who is true to his word always. We speak about an awesome God, about the God who has revealed himself in the Bible. He speaks, and it exists. Do you think that you or I, with anything we do or say, could impress such a God? He is the one who made us. He is the one who has given you and me the ability to speak and to act. Isaiah, he had a very good concept of such an almighty God. In a vision, the Lord showed himself to him in his majesty. And Isaiah saw God seated on the throne, high and exalted. And he saw all the angels around him, and he heard them calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. As they spoke, the earth shook. At that point, Isaiah stood in awe of such an almighty God. And therefore he cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah could not help but feel totally worthless in the face of such glory, such majesty and might. He had seen the almighty God, and he expected to die. But that's also what the Lord God himself said would happen if you saw him. You cannot see God and live. And that is only because of man's sinfulness. He cannot stand before such a holy God. The same thing is true of the high priest Joshua. He stood before the throne of God and he was dressed in filthy clothes. And beside him stood Satan ready to accuse him. Satan was eager to point to his filthy clothes and to point that out to the Lord God. And he had every right to do so for Joshua's clothes were filthy because of his continual transgression of God's laws. They were filthy because of the pollution that clung to him because of his sins. The high priest's dress, known as the ephod, and made of costly material, worked with gold, purple, and scarlet, 
was supposed to be meticulously clean when he presented himself in the temple. Not a speck of dirt was allowed to be found on his clothes. But now, here stood Joshua before the Almighty God himself, and in spite of his beautiful, impeccable clothes, they are nevertheless found to be totally filthy. And they were in that condition because of his own fault. Joshua knew that he had no excuse. Satan had a good case before God. And because of his guilty conscience, Joshua knew it. For as the Catechism says, my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. Our consciences accuse us. Please note that the, that the Catechism is speaking here about the conscience of a believer. For our conscience has been conditioned by the word of God. Those who do not know God and those who have ignored him, well, their consciences are defective. Listen to what Paul says about that to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 2 where he speaks about false teachings. He says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Our consciences, however, accuse us. For we, knew, for we know, at least we ought to, what God wants from us. We know that God wants absolute obedience to his law. And we know how far we fall short of what God requires from us. We know how we sin against him and how we sin against our neighbor every day, day in, day out. And now there stands Joshua with his filthy clothes before God. Do you know whom he represents? You and me. And how did we get to that Terrible predicament. Well, let's go back to the catechism, to the second paragraph, which begins with the little words, yet God. Those two words introduce the most liberating and profound statement you will ever hear. It is momentous. It is wonderful. These words that follow are so precious here we find the only answer to our predicament. And that's also what our second point deals with. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is what happens to the high priest Joshua. As he stands there before the throne of God as a guilty man, about to be thrown into everlasting condemnation, he commands the angel to take off his filthy clothes and declares to him, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. What a wonderful moment! His filthy clothes are instantly replaced with wedding garments. He is invited to celebrate with God. Why would the Lord God do that? How is it possible? 
Well, listen to how we are further instructed by the catechism. The perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is given to him. The perfect satisfaction refers to the doing of God's law. Christ has fulfilled every requirement of the law for our sakes. Nothing needs to be added to what Christ has done. Christ is the one who has fulfilled the law actively and passively. He fulfilled the law and he suffered on our behalf. His obedience and his suffering and death were enough of a payment. God requires no less and no more. For that reason, God is not impressed with anything we do or say. For everything we do and say is tainted with sin. The only thing that is acceptable in the sight of God is the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His righteousness and holiness are also imputed to all those who believe. He has put us in a right relationship to the law and so made us holy, pure, white as snow. And there we stand before the throne of God, cleansed. What a wonderful statement that is given here, congregation. What a great song of praise about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's still more. It says that his work is given to us out of mere grace. The word mere refers to the fact that it has a legal reality. It is done without assistance or support. His grace is absolute. It is total. It is undiminished. It must be considered apart from everything else. That is what that word mere stands for. It means that we have nothing to offer. Brothers and sisters, do you want to go shopping? Do you want to receive a benefit from your faith? What will you use for payment? Well, the only thing that you have is what God gives you. You have nothing whatsoever to offer. Your prayers, your church going, your alms do nothing for your salvation. God's salvation is free. And there is no end to the riches that you receive. For listen, what else answer 60 tells us. We are told that he grants these benefits to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. Do you note the triumph in these words? It is a song of jubilation. These are words to sing about. Whatever you may have here on earth has no significance whatsoever once you realize the riches of those benefits. You may stand in the midst of adversity. The world may fall apart around you. Your crops may fail. Your house may burn down. Your children may be afflicted with all kinds of diseases. Wars may break out. Natural disasters may come. Your enemies may strip you naked and humiliate you. But none of those things can take away 
the joy of that statement. Paul, in the midst of his miserable circumstances, languishing in jail, without a coat to keep him warm, rejoices. He writes to the Philippians that he rejoices in all and every circumstance. How is it possible? It is possible because he realizes what a great gift he has been given by the Lord his God, the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life. But Paul and all others receive these things only if they believe without faith. You don't receive them. Without faith, you are left out in the cold. Without faith, you are left only to look forward to earthly things, to things that do not last. That's what unbelievers have. And that's also what this Lord's Day is about. Here, faith is put into the center. We must respond to those gifts that God gives you by believing and therefore also by being thankful. We come to the last point. We are told in answer 60 that I must accept this gift with a believing heart. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper and when parents present their child for baptism, then they do this because they responded because of their faith. Because we believe God's promises. And then we eat of the bread and we drink of the wine to acknowledge and remember that the Lord Jesus died for our sins and made us heirs to life everlasting. And the baby, Cohen Jacobsma, was baptized with the knowledge that God gives eternal promises. He doesn't promise material well-being. He does not promise earthly goods. He promises to look after us, to provide for us. And we do receive those things, and we receive more than that even. But we receive those things only as a reminder of what is to come, which is eternal blessedness. That is why he gives his gifts to you and to the whole world, so that they may know how God blesses. But he also withholds to remind you of his curses on those who don't believe in him. The Catechism says that God's gifts are imputed to me. Similar wording is used in the form for the baptism of infants, which you just read, imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing from our sins and the daily renewal of our lives till we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. And these words were not just meant for Cohen. These words were meant for all of us, and of course, especially our children, and we confess this over against the Roman Catholics and also over against the Arminians, their objection is, well, you must do good works. How can you automatically include children in the covenant? At least faith has to be evident before those promises can be appropriated. But do you know what they do? They now make faith something with which you earn your salvation. And that's not right either. They make it a work and not a gift. Think about what they're saying when they do that. 
let me give you an illustration to help you. You drive your car into the river, and you're about to go under and to drown. And then someone comes along to pull you out. You stretch out your hand to him so that he can hold on to you and pull you out. Now then, who saved you? Did you save yourself? Did you really have any role in the rescue just because you stretched out your hand and trusted your rescuer and believed that he would save you? Of course not. And that is the way it is with us. God has saved you from your sins. He has saved you from death. And it is all his doing. Indeed, you have to stretch out your hand to him. You must hang on to your Savior for dear life. You must cleave to him, as the form says. But also that you can only do in God's strength. The Bible clearly says that we cannot even so much as lift a finger of our own strength. Once again, brothers and sisters, it's all God's doing. And you must accept also what he has done and show your thankfulness. And what is this thankfulness? How do you show it? By doing good works. The role of good works will be dealt with, Lord willing, the next time. Your good works are only a fruit of what God has done. Once again, to him is the glory. Amen.